Hello, this is Pizzicato Ost, and I am Leo Jivetsky. Whenever I think um, I'd like to review a recording and I go through some of my favorites, I often get very disappointed to know either A, it has never made it to digital and is only available on an old LP, or B, it is not available on the mainstreaming platforms. This really limits me greatly in recommending favorite recordings and also makes me think of how names, ideas, design, and whole eras can disappear from the memory of humanity. Okay, maybe a bit less pathos. But if this is a cry that can potentially reach Apple Music or Spotify, please hear me. We need more great classical recordings to be available and enjoyed on your platforms. Today, we speak of recordings made in 1961 and 1968, who have seen many releases on LP and CD, and are luckily also available on streaming platforms, and made it into one album. Mstislav Rostropovich on the cello, and Benjamin Britten at the piano, play pieces by Schubert, Schumann, and Debussy. And while each of these musicians in each of these pieces deserve at least a whole episode of their own, we will try to fit it all in our show today. Let's begin the story in 1959, when the 53-year-old Dmitry Shostakovich completes his first cello concerto, written for his 32-year-old friend an ex-composition student, the brilliant cellist Mstislav Rostropovich, or Slava, as he preferred to be called. Short flashback, Rostropovich entered the Moscow Conservatory in 1943, where he became a pupil of Shostakovich, who had begun teaching in Moscow earlier the same year. When Shostakovich was dismissed from his post in 1948, after the Zhdanov Decree, the 21-year-old Rostropovich quit the conservatory in protest. So, back in 1959, and the Shostakovich Cello Concerto. Rostropovich learns the part, and this is one of the most difficult cello concertos ever written, in a period of four days. He first performs it on October 4, 1959, at the Great Hall of the Leningrad Philharmonic under Yevgeny Mravinsky. We are privileged to have a recording testament of the second time the concerto was played, a few days after the Leningrad premiere, in Moscow, with the Moscow Philharmonic under Alexander Gauck. Thank you. 
This was the first movement of Dmitry Shostakovich's first cello concerto, Opus 107, played by Mstislav Rostropovich and the Moscow Philharmonic under Alexander Gauck on October 9th, 1959. A great triumphant journey begins for the Shostakovich cello concerto with performances all over the world. The first London performance of the piece occurs on September 21st, 1960, at the Royal Festival Hall. This is in a concert featuring pieces by two of the greatest living composers of the time. Alongside Shostakovich's first cello concerto stands Benjamin Britten's The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, a piece composed some 15 years earlier, yet another piece for an episode of its own. This was the final fugue from Benjamin Britten's The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, played by the New York Philharmonic, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. So at this London concert in 1960, three people, Shostakovich, Britten, and Rostropovich, make their first acquaintance. These were to become long 
and fruitful friendships. Although it could all go wrong, Rostropovich had been barely aware of Britain in 1960, even by name. He'd heard of his Purcell Variations, or The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, a piece of which we'd just heard, but had clearly not actually heard the piece, since he thought Britain belonged to Purcell's era. Purcell was a 17th century English Baroque composer. So when Shostakovich offered to introduce him to Britain after the concert, Rostropovich thought it was a joke. Britain, however, sensitive as he was, paid no attention to this incident. He was thrilled by the playing of Rostropovich and inspired by this gloriously uninhibited musician. Rostropovich immediately asked Britain to compose something for him too. This is something he did with practically every composer he came to know. And they settled on a cello sonata, on a condition that the Russian would come to Albro in Suffolk to give its premiere at Britain's festival the following year. This was the second movement of Britain's cello sonata, written for Rostropovich, recorded at one of the recitals given by the two great musicians at the Albra Festival in 1961. It's funny to see how Britain is being humble in his knowledge of the cello as he writes to Rostropovich when sending him the score he'd just composed. This specific bit 
is about the moment we've just heard. He writes, The pizzicato movement will amuse you. I hope it is possible. Anyway, during their short time rehearsing and giving recitals in summer of 1961, they also find the time for a few recording sessions of the same program at the Kingsway Hall in London, where most of our recommended recording is made. Kingsway Hall was one of the great recording temples in Great Britain. With the demise of the recording industry in general, the hall also rapidly deteriorated and was finally demolished in 1998. The London Symphony alone has made 421 recordings here, not to mention a great many other orchestras and soloists. Now, let us say a bit about Schumann's Fünf Stücke im Volkston, or Five Pieces in Folk Style, Opus 102. Composed in 1849, the composer's most productive year, these are Schumann's only surviving original work for cello and piano. Even though we know Schumann had taken cello lessons as a young man, he has very little acknowledgement for the instrument in his early years. Later, of course, in 1850, he composes a cello concerto, which is a cornerstone of concert repertoire. Thank you. 
Thank you. 
This was the final movement of Schumann's cello concerto, played by Mstislav Rostropovich, with the Leningrad Philharmonic under Gennady Rozdestvinsky, recorded in 1961. Now, the five pieces in folk style are kind of little siblings of the concerto. They were first performed on Schumann's 40th birthday, June 8th, 1850, by his wife Clara and their friend Andreas Grabau, the dedicatee, a cellist in the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra. By a strange coincidence, the cello concerto was only performed first after the composer's death in the year of his 50th anniversary. The five pieces in folk style contain a simplicity, bold expression, and broad humor of German folk songs and dances. Here, the title has the key to the entire piece. The musician must invent a story to match the piece and tell it through the music, like folklore. If you don't do that, you'll bore your listener, and this beautiful art will turn into a dry and uninspiring music. Folk style is not meant as a loud display of virtuosity. Rather, it's the especially vibrant way of telling an intensely imagined narrative. About this piece, the Neue Zeitschrift für Musik of the time wrote, These pieces are less apt for a virtuoso player than a well-versed one who can speak on his instrument with tone and meaning. As an example, let's take the first piece entitled Vanitas Vanitatum, All is Vanity, or in other words, All Things Earthly are Transitory, marked in the score Mit Humor, with humor. Behind the music, we can imagine someone in love with himself who simply cannot understand why everyone is making fun of him. This person's situation needs to be described. It is funny and sad at the same time. Thank you. 
This was the first piece of Schumann's Five Pieces in Folk Style, Opus 102, Vanitas Vanitatum, from our recommended recording with Mstislav Rostropovich and Benjamin Britten. We move on with the record to the Debussy cello sonata. In 1915, demoralized by the carnage of World War I and fighting his own battle against cancer, the 53-year-old Claude Debussy writes... I quote, Try as I may, I can't regard the sadness of my existence with caustic detachment. Sometimes my days are dark, dull, and soundless, like those of a hero from Elgar Allan Poe. And my soul is as romantic as a Chopin ballad. Cruelly faced with his own mortality, Debussy works on a series of instrumental sonatas. Debussy had intended to compose a total of six instrumental sonatas for various instruments, yet at the time of his death in 1918, at the age of 56, only three were completed, the first of which is the cello sonata. During his summer of 1915 holiday by the sea in Pourville, Debussy worked at great speed. The sonata, with an unusual sequence of movements, prologue, serenade, finale, was published that same year. Initially subtitled Pierrot is Angry at the Moon, the sonata for cello and piano does have in it some of the Commedia dell'arte sensibility of the day, 
a raw, dark humor. The cello sonata is the most unrefined, emotionally exposed of these three sonatas, and maybe even of all of Debussy's work. The sonata is notable for its brevity, most performances not going over 13 minutes or so. It is a staple of the modern cello repertoire and is commonly regarded as one of the finest masterpieces written for the instrument. And since it's so short, I will play all three little movements of it from our recommended recording with some short commentary. The piece makes use of modes and whole tone and pentatonic scales, as is typical of Debussy's style. It also utilizes many types of extended cello technique, including left-hand pizzicato, spiccato and flautando bowing, false harmonics and portamenti. This is at least partially what makes it so technically demanding. In the opening movement, the prologue, ornamental turns seem to recall the keyboard music of the French Baroque composers. There is a sense of quiet lament in the piano's beautifully direct opening statement. With a cello's entrance, a soulful conversation unfolds between the two instruments, which fades into dreamy serenity in the transcendent final moments.
The middle movement is almost jazz-like in its counterpoint among three voices. Piano in a dual role of melodic partner with the cello and as plucky, bluesy accompaniment. Bowed cello in its upper register sharing the melody with the piano and the cello's lowest notes played pizzicato in an elastic syncopation that takes on the role of an upright jazz bass. There is indeed a lunar quality about this movement. Time stops and starts. Melodic and harmonic themes shift between sultry darkness and starlit dances. From the final quiet statement of the serenade spills an exuberant duet between cello and piano. The cello's opening ascending sequence introduces a dancing theme which is folded into the mix for the Rondo-like re-exemption of the work's previous themes. The personas which emerge in this music seem simultaneously comic and mysterious, buffoonish and mercurial, with an occasional hint of menace. In the final bars, notice the ethereal bell tones which emerge in the piano.
we move into the final movement without pause. The descending four-note bass line, which opens this movement, could have been taken from a baroque ostinato line. A thrillingly wild and unpredictable ride follows, bringing this brief sonata to an exhilarating close.
past, we get to the piece that was recorded later during Britain's festival in Aldborough in 1968. Benjamin Britten, his partner, tenor Peter Piers, Mstislav Rostropovich, and his wife, soprano Galina Vishnevskaya, give recitals and concerts in Aldborough, London, and Edinburgh, and Rostropovich and Britten partially repeat their program choice of 1961 with Schubert's Arpeggione Sonata. This is a piece I dearly love and treasure for its sheer musical beauty and simplicity. This is for me a rare piece I can also listen to as background mood-creating music. So let's say a few words about this work. For this, um, we will first go back to Vienna in 1823, to the workshop of Johann Georg Stauffer, who had been making string instruments, mostly guitars, for at least a decade by that time. In a row of experiments, he develops a string instrument similar to a guitar with six strings, but bowed like a cello. It had many names, such as guitar cello, the romantic love guitar, or what stuck more solidly, the arpeggione. Many contemporaries were bewildered by the sound qualities of the new instrument. Critics compared its sound in the top register to that of an oboe and to the basset horn, which is kind of a clarinet, in the lower register. Vincenz Schuster, the first musician to present the new instrument to the public, had made various transcriptions of works of his contemporary composers for the arpeggione. But no instrument can live on a repertoire of transcriptions without a core repertoire of its own. Schuster was a friend of Schubert's, and although we have no proof of this, it seems like he had commissioned or at least inspired Schubert for creating a sonata for the arpeggione in 1824, only a year after the instrument had been presented. For Schubert, it is typical when working with a solo instrument to take the role of the song composer, the piece having many features of his lieder, the, the songs that Schubert had composed over 600 of in his short life. So, the first appearance of the theme in the first movement is a typical lead introduction. The phrases of the solo instrument are also completely vocal in nature. In the adagio, the second movement, we get a deeper image, dramatically revising the main theme and bringing a lamenting conclusion. These dramatic, sad final phrases are also quite typical for Schubert's late song legacy. The final movement of the sonata is based on a dance motif and follows sort of a liberation of the senses, which is specifically evident in the inspired and happy yodeling intonations. Thank you. 
This was the third movement of the Schubert Arpeggione Sonata, taken from our recommended recording. The instrument, the Arpeggione, had a very short life as a popular instrument, probably no more than a decade. The Arpeggione Sonata was only published over 40 years after the composer's death, and by then the instrument had been largely forgotten. Ever since, it is mostly played on the cello or sometimes on the viola. There are also transcriptions for other instruments, but that is not that often heard. With a fashion for authentic playing and authentic instruments in the late 20th century, the arpeggione comes off the shelves in the museums and on the stage with many more performances of the Schubert piece in its original sounding. Rostropovich had learned the Arpeggione Sonata specifically for his first Albro visit and has only played it publicly twice, both times with Britain. When Rostropovich himself was dying in 2007, his family played him some of his recordings for stimulus and consolation. One was his performance of Schubert's Arpeggione Sonata with Britain, whom he called Benjik. 
with his huge repertoire and insane performance schedule, Rostropovich never played the piece with anyone else except for Benjamin Britten. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We would be very grateful for likes, shares, comments, and questions. Anything that could make the program better. We will be back with more music soon. And for now, bye-bye.